0: This sermon is part of an ongoing series on founding mothers of Unitarian Universalism. Quite a few years now, we began with Margaret Fuller, who, along with Emerson and Thoreau, is one of our three most important transcendentalist forebears. Her 1845 pamphlet, Women in the 19th Century, was a significant contribution to the women's equality movement. Next, we move to the three Peabody sisters, uh, especially Elizabeth Peabody, an author herself who published many of the Transcendentalists under her own imprint and became the celebrated founders of kindergartens in America. She's the one that brought that from Germany here. Then we explore the life of Julia Ward Howe, about whom it was said she had six children, learned six languages, and published six books. She was most famous for writing the lyrics to the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and she helped found Mother's Day herself through her um, Mother's Day proclamation for peace, which is very much worth revisiting if you haven't read that recently. We've also focused on Mary Moody Emerson, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's aunt, whom he called his earliest and best teacher as well as Louisa May Alcott, best known as the author of Little Women. At the time of her death in 1888, she was the country's single most popular author and had earned more from writing than any male author of her time. Olympia Brown, a universalist who at 1863 became the first woman to be ordained with full denominational recognition, and Lydia Mariah Child, a pathbreaking activist for social justice in the 19th century. And coming up to finally to last year, we've been at this for a while with this uh, series. Uh, Our focus was on uh, Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin, a woman of many firsts, the first woman to receive a Ph.D. in astronomy. It was from Radcliffe College, Uh, the first promoted to a full professor at Harvard, Uh, the first woman to head a department at Harvard, and in what has been called, quote, the most brilliant Ph.D. thesis ever written in astronomy, she was the first to describe what stars are made of. In future years, I look forward to telling you about some of our other founding mothers, Judith Sargent Murray, an early American advocate for women's rights, who was married to John Murray, the founder of the universalist half of our movement. Sophia Lyon Fawes, who revolutionized 20th century uh, religious education. Sarah Ripley, an American educator and noted scholar at a time when when women were rarely admitted to universities. And Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, one of the first African American women to be published in the United States. All Unitarians and Universalists. And my intent with this quick summary is not to overwhelm you with all those names and dates. There's no pop quiz afterwards. You don't have to remember all of that. Rather, I hope your takeaway will be that as Unitarian Universalists, we truly are lifted up on the shoulders of giants, many of whom were path-breaking women. And retelling these stories of our UU ancestors allows their lives to continue to inspire us in our UU values and our actions today to build the world we dream about. In that spirit for this Mother's Day Sunday, as Danielle mentioned, we're going to explore the fascinating life and legacy of the Blackwell sisters, or two of them. Uh, There are a lot of Blackwell children, I'll get to that in a second, particularly Elizabeth Blackwell. She was the first woman to earn a degree from medical school in the United States and the first woman to appear on a medical registry in the United Kingdom. This service leaves you curious to learn more. My sermon was inspired by a biography of her published a little more than a year ago uh, titled The Doctors Blackwell, How Two Pioneering Sisters Brought Medicine to Women and Women to Medicine. If you were to visit New York City today and make your way over to Greenwich Village and then to 58 Bleecker Street, you would find the following plaque, Site of Elizabeth Blackwell's Infirmary for Women and Children. In this building, the plaque says, the first female doctor in America, Elizabeth Blackwell, established the first hospital staffed and run by women. The New York Infirmary for Women and Children opened on May 12, 1858. So almost, you know, almost to the to the date here in May. A date which is also the birthday of Blackwell's friend and collaborator, Florence Nightingale, who herself was actually a universalist. Blackwell was a Unitarian. Groundbreaking at the time, the hospital provided free medical care for indigent women and children and offered clinical experience and instruction for women determined to expand their skills as physicians. Has anybody visited that site in New York? Has anybody been there in Greenwich? Village? All right. If it's for anybody in the chat, let me know as well. I'd be interested to know. It's actually a stop. You can get the, uh, a civil rights and social justice map from the Greenwich Village uh, Historical Preservation Society. So they'll kind of take you around all these famous places. And when that plaque was dedicated a few years ago, they sold white t-shirts with black and hot pink writing that said, Elizabeth Blackwell, OGMD, the uh, original gangster of medical women. I'll share with you just a little bit of her story. And to do that, come with me back 165 years to May 12, 1858, to that same building on the corner of Bleecker and Crosby Street when that original official grand opening was held for Dr. Blackwell's infirmary for women and children. In Elizabeth's own words, there were two purposes why she did what she did. Uh, And that was to allow women to consult doctors of their own sex free of charge that had never been done before and to provide the growing number of female medical students with the practical experience denied them by established hospitals. And as impressive as Blackwell was, the board of trustees of that infirmary feared being perceived as too radical. And so the main speech that day was not given by Blackwell. She was only allowed to say just a few words. And then they brought in uh, the Reverend Henry Ward Beecher, which was perhaps the most widely admired uh, clergy person in New York City at that time. But the truth was, as we'll talk a little bit more later, Elizabeth Blackwell overall was pretty conservative, except for the whole becoming the first female doctor thing. Uh so and this occasion though was one of many sexist microaggressions that she had to or aggression aggressions that she had to, that she and her sister Emily had to endure in blazing this path that so many others have now followed. Uh to tell you a little of how they reached that paradigm shifting day, Elizabeth was born in 1821, Emily 5 years later in 1826. There were nine Blackwell children in all, and in 1832, when Elizabeth um, was 11 years old, the whole family immigrated from England to the U.S. And for whatever confluence of reasons, none of the five Blackwell sisters married. None of them did, uh, although the four brothers each did. Interestingly, two of the brothers uh, married path-breaking women as well. Uh, Samuel Blackwell married Antoinette Brown, who we've mentioned before. She was the first woman in the United States to be ordained as a minister. And Henry Blackwell married Lucy Stone, a, a prominent social justice activist, another future candidate for a future uh, founding mother of UU. Uh, Antoinette Brown was not Unitarian, but uh, Lucy Stone was a Unitarian. Elizabeth doesn't seem to have really been bothered by being single. If anything, she was just bothered by the preponderance of heteronormative models in which every piece of artistic and cultural material seemed to center women as uh, you know, their highest aspiration being becoming a wife or a mother. And that's not what she felt called to. Indeed, at the young age of 17, she wrote, I wish some skillful pen would produce an interesting old maid's life. At 17, I think she would have liked the paper bag princess that, uh, that Danielle read earlier. In the broadest sense of the word, however, she was a mother and understood herself that way to many. She mothered many patients. she mothered many female medical students who became doctors. She said it this way in an 1855 pamphlet that was titled On the Medical Education of Women. She said, the woman who cares but for her own children is a feeble caricature of womanhood, and it is not its true representative. She argued that the fullest expression of motherhood must extend outside the home to care for all aspects of society. I also wanted to be sure to share with you a little about Blackwell's connection to the Unitarian half of our Unitarian Universalist heritage. In 1839, when Elizabeth was 18 years old, she was drawn to the Unitarian preaching of William Henry Channing. Now, that's different. He's actually the nephew of William Ellery Channing. Some of you may have heard William Ellery Channing's the one that gave the famous Baltimore Sermon on Unitarian Christianity, helped give us the name Unitarian. Uh, This is his nephew that influenced Elizabeth. By the next year, all three of the eldest Blackwell sisters had become Unitarians, making their parents a little anxious, but they didn't care. Uh, They were introduced um, through Channing to the Unitarian reform movement of transcendentalism, and Elizabeth in particular was especially drawn to the writings of both Ralph Waldo Emerson and to Margaret Fuller, both um, Unitarians and transcendentalists. And it's not insignificant that in 1841, you know, Elizabeth didn't do this thing of deciding to become the first woman to become... It didn't come out of nowhere. There's this context. So it's not insignificant that in 1841, six years before Elizabeth would apply to medical school, she read Emerson's essay on self-reliance. That made a difference in her life. I'll, I'll limit myself to just two quotes from that essay. Trust thyself, Emerson wrote, every heart vibrates to that iron string. "'Insist on yourself, never imitate. "'That which each can do best, "'none but his maker can teach him.'" He, uh, the essay also says, "'Is it so bad then to be misunderstood?' "'Cause she certainly was that, right? "'But Emerson said, "'Is it so bad then to be misunderstood?' "'Pythagoras was misunderstood, "'and Socrates, and Jesus, and Luther, "'and Copernicus, and Galileo, "'and every pure and wise spirit that ever took uh, took flesh. "'To be great,' Emerson said, is to be misunderstood. Such words helped reassure and emboldened Elizabeth as a woman seeking to shatter the glass ceiling of medicine. Likewise, it is not insignificant that in 1845, two years before Elizabeth would apply to medical school, she read Margaret Fuller's then-new book, Woman in the 19th Century, which even negative reviewers agreed was the first significant work to take the liberal side of the question of women's rights since the day of Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women 50 years earlier. Here, too, I'll limit myself to just two representative quotes. Fuller wrote, We would have every arbitrary barrier thrown down. We would have every path laid open to women as freely as to men. She also wrote, I think women need, especially at this juncture in the mid-19th century, a much greater range of occupation than they have to rouse their latent powers. If you ask me what offices they may refill, I reply, any. I do not care what case you put to it. Let them be sea captains, if they will. Keep in mind that this book was particularly significant because, again, it was published in 1845. That's three years before the first women's rights convention in 1848 in Seneca Falls in New York. Also significant, Elizabeth applied to and was accepted to medical school at Geneva Medical College in upstate New York in 1847, again, a year before the first Women's Rights Convention. I mean, this is really path-breaking, ahead-of-their-time stuff. The final decision to admit Elizabeth Blackwell to medical school, it turned out—it turned on a vote of all the current male students at that school. Uh, as it turns out, many of them actually, they voted unanim- unanimously to admit her, but they did it on a lark. They did it kind of in the spirit of mischief, like, oh, we'll, we'll do this prank to our professors and, and let a woman come to medical school. But Blackwell didn't care. She made the most of the opportunity and very much rose to the occasion. She graduated as a doctor in 1849, just before her 28th birthday. Her younger sister, Emily, graduated medical school five years later in 1854. I should also add about Elizabeth's later work in England and her recognition as the first woman to appear on the medical registry in the UK, that she is more accurately the first acknowledged female practitioner. As some of you may know, half a century earlier in 1812, the University of Edinburgh had conferred a medical degree on a one James Barry, a slim, smooth cheeked, seeming young man who went on to spectacular success as a high ranking military physician. Not until the autopsy upon his death in 1865 was it discovered that Barry was female. That precedent is all the more significant today amidst attacks on transgender rights. To share one more story about Elizabeth's uh, connection to Unitarianism, in 1850, as a freshly minted physician, she visited her home country of England for some further studies and had the opportunity to visit her childhood minister. He remembered she was raised sort of evangelical Christian and then became, uh, became Unitarian. So he had remembered christening her as a baby and had heard these rumors that she had converted to Unitarianism as a late teenager. Writing home about this meeting, she said, I told him my religion was certainly a little peculiar, she said, but nevertheless, it was very good, and indeed a very strong one. And he didn't seem much troubled about the state of my soul. Indeed, I believe that on the whole, he considered my soul a little safer than most of the ladies in his acquaintance. (laughs) Now, there's much more to say about Elizabeth Blackwell, and I was interested to hear from a few of you this week as I began to share this preaching plan. A number, how many of you heard about Elizabeth Blackwell or read books about her growing up? Yeah, I see quite a few. I was really interested to hear a number of people say, actually, that one of their favorite books growing up was a book about Elizabeth Blackwell, because that's really, that's really interesting uh, to hear that from you all. Uh, much more to say about Elizabeth, much more to say about her sister Emily, as well as about their uh, sister Anna, who I really haven't mentioned, that also became a Unitarian. She actually was involved with that Unitarian utopian community of, at Brook Farm that we've talked about in a previous sermon. I can't get into that right now, but Anna, we could go into that, that story as well with Anna Blackwell. For now, regarding the legacy of the Doctors Blackwell, let me say this. Both uh, Elizabeth and Emily died in the same year, 1910 a little more than three months apart. Uh, They were the ages of 89 and 83, respectively, so they both lived quite long lives. At that time, six decades after Elizabeth had become the first woman to receive a degree from medical school in the U.S., the sisters lived to see a time in which there were 9,000 women, who had become medical doctors, 6% of all physicians at that time. Today, about 35% of all physicians are uh, female and slightly more than half of all medical students. So I think you're going to see that percentage continuing to rise. But before concluding, I don't feel like I can talk this morning about the first woman medical doctor in the U.S., which has been my planned topic for more than a year. This book was published in January of 2021. I said, oh, that's my next Mother's Day sermon. I had had another one to get out of the way. uh, So I I knew for more than a year that this was going to be my topic. But I feel like I can't bring it up now without talking about last week's leaked United States Supreme Court draft decision in Dobbs versus Jackson's uh, Women Health Organization, which in its current form, as Danielle mentioned, would overturn Roe versus Wade. I've spoken previously at length about reproductive justice. In addition, I led a six-week class on the topic of reproductive justice a few years ago. I can send you that curriculum if you're interested. I preached a sermon in 2013 titled, Did you just send that woman to church to get help with an abortion? And that's often what people have said about, because because Unitarian Universalist churches are places that women have come to get help with abortions for years, for decades. And in 2020, I preached a sermon titled, Trust Women, Bodies, Laws, and Reproductive Justice. Both of those sermons are available in our sermon archive if they would be of interest or help to anyone. I plan to preach about—I've been planning to preach about reproductive justice for a long time this coming January, which, no matter what happens, will be the 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision. For now, I will say that I do find the framework of reproductive justice to be helpful in a very contentious debate in which people uh, argue about terminology. I find this term, reproductive justice, helpful. It's uh, As defined by the sister song uh, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, they uh, define reproductive uh, reproductive justice this way. The human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy, to have children, to not have children and to parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities that that's how they define what reproductive justice is i'm also aware that within unitarian universalism there is room for a spectrum of positions in regard to unit, to reproductive justice not all you use are in the same place about reproductive justice indeed dr elizabeth blackwell personally understood the hippocratic oath as protecting her as preventing her from helping with or performing uh, abortions. She often described herself as, quote, too conservative for the reformers and too progressive for the conservatives. In contrast, many women physicians who have followed in her footsteps, including during her lifetime, understood access to abortion to be essential for comprehensive and equitable reproductive care. And as my colleague, the Reverend Dr. Susan Frederick Gray, the current president of our Unitarian Universalist Association, said in a statement released last week, we know that the most damaging impacts of overturning Roe will be felt by people of color, by young people, by the poor, by working class people, and those living in rural areas. As Unitarian Universalists, we believe that all bodies are sacred and that every person has the right to determine if, when, and how they have children. As people of faith, this commitment is part of our sincerest religious values. Unitarian Universalism proclaims that all individuals and communities have the right to self-determination, to safety, and to resources that are necessary for health and sustainability. We also hold in our hearts the potential future implications that overturning overturning Roe could have for marriage equality, for birth control, for other issues. If you're feeling overwhelmed individually by this potential sea change, let me tell you what I often say about many social justice issues. If you're feeling overwhelmed as one person, stop being one person. Find a network to join. We are stronger together. Uh, you can look in our e-newsletter. The link is right at the top of our homepage. But you know, the, basically the, the two biggest ways we can make an impact on any social justice issue, you know, join a network, and give time or money. Some people have more money than time. Some people have more time than money. Some people don't have much of either. But you know, give what you can. You can go. There's. I'll, I'll give you just three quick examples. You can go to abortionfunds.org if you want to make sure that you know people have access. People that need them that who want an abortion but can't afford one, you can give money to abortionfunds.org. If you want to volunteer time, two options are the Liberate Abortion Coalition, as well as SACRED, the Spiritual Alliance of Communities for Reproductive Dignity, which is building a multiracial, multi-faith movement for congregations across the country that publicly proclaim their support for reproductive dignity. Again, all those uh, links will be in my sermon manuscript, as well as they are already on our homepage in our e-newsletter. For now, I invite you to consider you know, how, as Elizabeth felt called to you know, transgress the boundaries that existed and to let her light shine in the way that she, even in her lifetime, gave permission to you know, thousands of other women to let their light shine. And that when, you know, as we see on Christmas Eve, when we pass the, the candle in our candlelight service, if I allow you to light your candle from mine, it doesn't diminish my candle right, to let you light yours from mine. So let's keep that in mind. Hold that in your heart. How are you feeling called to act in the coming days and weeks, to shine your light, to shine our light? Let's rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together this little light of mine.